1: Welcome to Military Network Radio. We're very glad that you've joined us this morning. We try and pick topics that really touch a great number of people. And more and more, we're finding when we're talking to people in the military family support space that there are a number of what we call sandwich caregivers, people who are taking care of wounded warriors, veterans, um, as well as children with special needs. And today we're going to focus on the sandwich caregiver and what their needs are, as well as talking about the importance of early diagnosis and early intervention in the autism spectrum disorder space. And so we have a wonderful show today. Justin Constantine is joining me as co-host. And we're going to be talking with Scott Fowler, who is a subject matter expert on uh, autism early intervention and diagnosis. He was a former school administrator and later central office administrator in Prince William County, Virginia, with 350 uh, special needs parents and all of the teams that that avails themselves of. But most importantly, which we think gives him the most credibility is he's the parent of an autistic child and has lived in this space and is really very informed as well as has a huge desire to share this information with the public and our audience in particular. So, Scott, I'd love it if you'd add some background on you, but first of all, welcome to Military Network Radio. Well,
2: thank you, Linda, and good morning, Justin, and everybody uh, joining us today. Um, Linda, my background for uh, you and your listeners began actually many, many years ago. Uh, When I was putting myself through college, I was working as a program manager for uh, Pennsylvania Special Olympics and then transitioned into teaching and then school administration. And the bulk of my work uh, between Maryland and Virginia in the special education space and in the autism space was building awareness and understanding and cultures of caring, and working with uh, parents and caregivers with regard to the daily stressors that they faced. And uh, uh, eight years ago, we were blessed with the birth of our oldest boy, who uh, by about the age of about six months, um, we knew that we had an issue. And uh, a lot of what we will discuss today is what we've learned on that journey, both uh, professionally and personally.
1: You know that's excellent um, in terms of background, Scott, because I think that having lived it, you can describe it for our audience. And I think it's important also for audience members who don't have a connection directly with autism to recognize and be aware of these things, because I think there are a lot of misunderstandings and. Just as TBI or traumatic brain injury benefits from early uh, intervention and diagnosis, so too does autism. And that's what we're going to be talking about today for the most part. So would you mind giving us some of the signs that a parent should look for in terms of a developing child?
2: Oh, I'd be happy to. First of all, you know, when we talk about a uh, typically developing child, and um, we look at what the warning signs of autism are. You know, the, the really big ones that stand out that should be red flags for parents are that uh, your baby doesn't smile much or all uh, by six months of age. So those big toothless smiles that they give you of wonder and surprise uh, by nine months. You're not seeing that baby talk or matching facial expressions where, you know, we make the googly faces and try and chat with them a little bit and get them to uh, replicate that or uh, imitate them. By 12 months, if uh, your baby's not babbling or making attempts at communicating with you, uh, including um, gesturing, you know, where's mommy, where's daddy, where's doggy, they should be by about 12 months able to point and make eye contact contact with regard to that Um, by the time they start coming up on uh, nearly two years old uh, 18 to 24 months they should be talking if your child is not talking that's a big red flag but uh, the typical two word phrases you know um, you know my toy or more milk or juice please those kinds of reciprocal or turn-taking talking pieces Uh, If you're not seeing those, those are big, big red flags. And another one is a significant or complete loss of speech. So if it seems like your child is meeting all the milestones and then all of a sudden they stop talking, you need to get together with your pediatrician immediately uh, so that you can start preparing for those things. Some other things to look at that are warning signs, and one of the big ones for us um you know your pediatrician's going to talk with you when your baby's born uh eventually about starting to have some tummy time and uh, for us that was the really big warning sign because uh when we put our son down to start tummy time um it was excruciating for him uh. we later learned why that was and we'll talk more about that uh, a little later in the broadcast uh but you know we had a lot of family members and friends saying oh your baby's just colicky uh, that's not anything to worry about. That's typical, and in fact, um, even our pediatrician said, "You know, the babies go through different phases." But we just knew deep down inside something was wrong because we weren't seeing the talking points, the facial expressions, the eye contact, and all these pieces coupled together is what led us on this journey as parents.
1: You know, Scott, as you're talking, I'm I'm wondering, and perhaps you know the statistic what age are children generally diagnosed and do most of the physicians and parents these days look into this uh, with the same level of concern or only the specialists?
2: Uh, In nearly the last uh, 25, 30 years that I've been doing this, typically what happens with families is they note a concern. The pediatricians have a checklist that is actually put out by the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is their Mm -hmm. governing body. And uh, when you go for your well baby checks, they literally go down the list, and um, there's not necessarily a concentration of autism uh, checks that they look through. And you know, one of the things that has recently come out last couple of years, the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics has come around to saying at 18 and 24 months, more focused discussions need to occur, and. That's because we've seen this huge prevalence. Uh, a couple of years ago, 1 in 68 children were being diagnosed. I've read studies that it's uh, closer to 1 in um, 45 at this point uh, that some studies are indicating. But you know, typically what happens is children aren't diagnosed uh, globally until about the ages of 4 or 5. Oh. And I can say from our own personal experience and from my work experience – Uh, you know, my professional experience, there is a large gap it's referred to as the diagnostic odyssey. So parents see a concern at a year or a year and a half, and they don't get a diagnosis to four and a half or five years old. Uh, I know in our case, our son was not diagnosed until he was nearly five. uh, But we had been working on early intervention. And that's the really big piece that we need to talk about pediatricians um, are certainly well-trained and prepared to work with families, but they are not the specialist when it comes to developmental disorders. And nobody could be. They have an awful lot of pieces that they have to touch in terms of health and well-being of children. Um, You know, certainly if you had, um, you know, health concerns yourself as an adult, you'd start off with your general practitioner and they most likely are going to refer you to a specialist. Well, the specialist in this space is a developmental pediatrician. And there are a lot of different types, but a a developmental pediatrician that focuses only on autism and developmental disabilities is where parents need to be. But unfortunately, the wait time is, is horrendous in some cases. It can be as much as eight months to over a year. So parents are left in a in a space where, you know, we're at a year, year and a half, maybe two years, and we're seeing these warning signs, but they're not getting a diagnosis and they're not getting help until after the child is maybe four and a half or five. And then what occurs after that is the fact that, um, you know, as, as the child matures, they've missed that early intervention window. And, uh, that early intervention window is between the ages of uh, two and, um, they say two and six, but it's really two and four. So that kind of gives parents a background to work with a little bit and why it's so important to get started early.
1: So Scott, we're coming up on a break, so we can start it now and continue after the break. But if a parent has concerns and there doesn't seem to be the acknowledgement by the general pediatrician or their family practitioner, which in many cases in the rural areas, that's who they're talking with, the research that they do on their own, does that raise more flags for parents raising anxiety levels? Or are they able to get in touch, even by telehealth in some cases, I'm sure, with the specialists in the area? Because as military families, You really are mobile and moving through. And again, we have just a short period of time. So if we'll start your answer and we'll continue after break.
2: Absolutely, Linda. Um, There are lots of options for parents, but I would, you know, I would caution parents not to run right out and Google everything. There's a lot of information. When we come back from the break, we can dive into it. But telehealth is one of the more viable options for families in more uh, rural areas And, uh, for example, Johns Hopkins University Hospital, Kennedy Krieger Institute, has several telehealth options where caregivers can go to a local hospital and uh, log in with employees in their local hospital and tie right into a developmental pediatrician. It doesn't forego seeing that developmental pediatrician, but it can certainly start the process and move it forward
1: which is an excellent use of technology to help aid when we just don't have the spread of developmental peds around the country. Fascinating information. And let's talk more about that after we return from the break. You are listening to military network radio. We're here today with Scott Fowler, a specialist in early intervention and diagnosis of autism and also a parent of an autistic child. We are Scott, one quick thing. Um, with the early interventions perhaps you can just give a very short answer did it help your son in terms of his development
2: Uh, my son i've uh, referred to in several communities as the poster child for early intervention and yes it was instrumental in what we did
1: perfect that's where we're going right after this break you're listening to military network radio we'll be right back
0: We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages.
3: Have you heard...
4: It's the fitness minute with fitness expert
5: Annette Hammond. Can you go out to the coffee store and still maintain low-calorie healthy eating? Drink this, not that, it says that you can if you make the right choices. The best choice for coffee is to drink it black. Adding milk, foam, chocolate syrups, etc. only adds calories and fat. Always choose cappuccinos over lattes. With nearly half the amount of milk, you'll save about 60 calories per medium cup. Stay away from frozen drinks, otherwise known as caffeinated milkshakes. They can carry between 400 and 700 calories each. When it comes to food at the coffee store, check the calories before you buy. Quiche is not a good choice and can have up to 500 calories per slice. Even though a brand muffin comes with a good dose of fiber... It also comes with close to 400 calories. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Like us on Facebook.
0: Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference.
1: Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion with Scott Fowler, a subject matter expert on autism and parent of an autistic child. Um, we were talking on break, and Justin, I believe you had a question for Scott.
6: Yeah, thanks, Linda. Scott, um, my wife, and I actually live in Manhattan now, but uh, most recently, my wife's a teacher. Most recently, she taught in Arlington County, but before that, she taught for a year down at Rockledge Elementary in your neck of the woods. So uh, I appreciate your perspective here say, because that's obviously a ve- or military heavy area with Fort Belvoir and Quantico um, right there in Prince William County, have you seen uh, in your area um, m- more more military families with autism than the uh, rest of the civilian population?
2: Um, when I, I saw it more when I was working in Prince William County, uh, and I saw a prevalence during that time of more families coming forth uh, seeking support for their children. Um, I don't have uh, specific data as to whether it's more concentrated in the military or not. I haven't seen anything in the trade publications or journals. But I'm seeing as, as a growing awareness has been developing, more families reaching out to school systems and local agencies to uh, garner assistance and get help. So that they can intervene uh, even more quickly with their children. I know that uh, just like your wife, uh, you know, every educator certainly knows the sooner that you get at a developmental disorder and be- can begin working through it, the, the better the outcomes begin uh, can become. And uh, you can move that process along towards, um, you know, a, a more uh, intensive circumstance to help your child. Uh, But yes, you know, in recent years, we've seen that growth happening in the military community. And I would continue to encourage families in the military community as well as all communities. Again, if you think that you see or you have a concern, please, please don't wait. The early intervention window is so important. And I really want parents to take away, you know, if you have a toddler or you um, uh, just have had a baby. Um, be thinking about these things because that window between the years and the ages between two and four are, are so important. About 83% of brain growth and development is completed by the age of three. So that's the golden window that, you know, with all the different interventions that we'll talk about during the broadcast today, this is where you really want to get them concentrated for maximum uh, assistance and help.
6: Yeah, that's, that's pretty incredible um, yeah, at such a young age you can make you have such an impactful or impact on, on really the rest of your life. And I would well, think for the military community since um, at least those on active duty have easy access to the hospital system and healthcare that maybe it's even easier for folks in the military to get uh, that extra attention at an early stage. What do you think? Um, you know, there are um,
2: a lot of different ways to work through things, but uh, just like you're saying, you know, getting there at an early age is, you know, absolutely imperative. And, uh, you know, as far as, you know, a parent myself, but also as a professional, you know, having the opportunity to start in early, you know, certainly takes care of things down the road. Um, and that's true of, you know, a lot of different disorders and, and issues that we deal with. Um, but, Again, you know, the concentration of access for military families make it, uh, you know, operably an ideal circumstance to get started with early. But it's apparent and incumbent upon the parents to get in there and have those discussions with their care providers. You know, the average uh, cost of raising a child with a developmental disability is about one point two million dollars. Uh, the average cost of raising an autistic individual is between 2.4 and $3.2 million over lifetime uh, because they have what are concerned or uh, also referred to as comorbid issues or kind of attached or associated issues that go with the disorder. And so the earlier you can start, the more you can limit uh, not only the financial piece, but the strain on the family unit. So I would think that military families are ideally suited with uh, the right resources. Yeah.
1: You know, the interesting part is, Scott, I think that there is some confusion on the part of families. If their physician tells them, well, let's take some time and observe this over time, instead of testing for it, what is the earliest you can take a test, and what does that test look like?
2: Well, first let's understand that – uh, spectrum disorder is a unique disorder to the human condition. It requires an observational um, evaluation, which means that your pediatrician, your developmental pediatrician, other caregivers that we'll talk about today will lump together a bunch of data, but it takes time to do that. Now, when we're talking about, you know, is there a, a simple test for autism? No, there isn't. But there are some some testing, some technology that's now available uh, that we can talk about this morning that is of great aid to parents and the care team, including the pediatricians and the clinicians that work uh, with children on the autism spectrum. But let me back up for a second um, to kind of give a quick history lesson. When we're talking about um, testing, typically, uh, you know, when you have your baby, uh, the hospital will do a heel stick. They'll take a blood draw. That's about 3 to 5% accurate in terms of developmental disabilities. So I know in our case, you know, the doctor came in uh, after the, the blood draw was completed and they did their analysis in the hospital lab and said, great, no developmental disabilities. And, you know, we kind of wiped our brow and said, okay, we're in, we're in good shape now. We had no idea that it was that inaccurate. There is a secondary test that is done in hospitals called a CMA test. It's a big long term. It stands for chromosomal microarray. And what parents need to understand is that's a more focused test looking at the DNA strand where developmental disorders are detected and found. Now, uh, most uh, CMAs that are done in hospitals are 18 to 20 or 21 percent. But what we've seen in the last few years are private companies that have produced enhanced CMA panels. And there's there's not a lot of them across the United States. There's a handful of them, but um, they are much more accurate, uh, up somewhere upwards of 37 percent in some cases in terms of accuracy. So what this means for not only, you know, professionals that might be listening today, but more importantly, parents, you know, you go into your pediatrician, you say you have a concern. The pediatrician, just like you said, uh, Linda, says, well, let's wait. Let's watch this. They're still within, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines. You know, my first response to a parent is, but doctor, we're really concerned about autism. Would you write a, a script? for occupational therapy evaluation and um, speech evaluations. And what that will do, that doesn't cost the physician anything to do, and it depends on what resources are in your local area or, you know, in a military family on base. But think of the the speech teachers, just what you remember from uh, their speech evaluation rather, as the uh, speech that you received uh, or if you knew children who received it while you were going through school, typically elementary school. So you work on articulating sounds and taking turns talking and how you think about speech. That's very important because in the autism spectrum space, speech disorders are, are very, very common. So you want to get that evaluation done as soon as possible. It can be done one and a half, two years old. Uh, occupational therapy. Uh, parents should think about occupational therapy more along the lines of um, how you act in your space around you balance, awareness, and they'll tackle things that happen a lot in the autism space dealing with social awareness. Mm -hmm. So I'd have those two scripts done that doesn't cost the doctor anything, and it helps the doctor uh, get data from other professionals. And then I would have a very, um, you know, very genuine discussion with the, the pediatrician and say, I know that genetic testing is available. Is there anything that you recommend And you need to be careful about this because you want a very concentrated uh, form of genetic testing. You know, there's different uh, testing that goes on, for example, like Ancestry.com to look at your your background. That's not going to really help you in a circumstance like this. You want something very, very specific uh, to look at whether you're looking at a developmental disorder. And I do know that in a lot of cases, uh, this is billed to insurance, including TRICARE, Uh, You know, obviously we can't get into an insurance discussion because there are so many different types of insurance. Uh, There are a lot of different – there's a lot of variants in the military community. But, you know, you'll have to look to your insurer and have those discussions with your pediatrician. But it is often offset by insurance. And it's – it doesn't take the diagnosis away from the doctor. What it does is just like the observations with speech and occupational therapy, it adds – uh, additional data so that you can speed up that diagnostic process. The other thing I would say to parents is if you have speech, note T uh, evaluations done and they notice a concern, do not hesitate to enroll your child in a therapy program. And often it's, it's both therapies. There are additional therapies that are available. Uh, one of them is, um, uh, in addition to occupational therapy, oftentimes you'll hear something called ABA. It's that it stands for uh, applied behavior analysis. And so, Linda, when you asked me on the early end, how soon can you start even before you get a diagnosis? If you're seeing speech and OT issues going on, you know, parents should ask a question of their, their pediatrician call, uh, about the early start Denver model. And this is a very specific uh, applied behavior analysis model. Think of ABA as a very structured program to help an autistic person or a person with developmental disabilities uh, integrate with the social experience. And on the early end – this early start Denver model that is now often being used all over the country starts very, very early. They they can start as early as 12 months old. So 11, 12 months old, parents can start getting very intensive therapy while they're waiting for some genetic testing to come back and while they're waiting for time with a developmental pediatrician. And what this does is it You know, I I mentioned earlier, by the age of three, 83% of the human brain is formed at that point. And with that being the case, you're taking advantage of that early window. And so parents absolutely want to grab a hold of that as soon as possible.
1: You know, Scott, that is very important. I believe that's done through play therapy. We're going to go on a short break right now, and we'll continue with our discussion with Scott Fowler and Justin Constantine right after these short messages, and we will be right back.
0: We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages.
4: and ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegelev for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on Toginet.com. And happily shares these through Today's Note to Self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak. Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com.
3: Have you heard?
0: Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference.
1: Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion on the early diagnosis and interventions with autism. Scott, let's step back a second and go through possibly what a conversation with a physician, either the pediatrician or family practitioner, would look like and how you can either insert urgency um, or breaks, you know, the opposite if things seem to be moving too fast for the understanding so that it matches what the parent and the child need.
2: Sure. Um, You know, Linda, stepping back here for a second, um, one of the first things we did as parents, we recognized with the well checks that the doctor, you know, all these well checks are set up for your baby and you have to go to all these visits. And uh, we recognize that the doctor was essentially working off a script uh, required by the American Academy of Pediatrics. So the first thing that I would say to parents is, you know, don't start to have a conversation about autism with your pediatrician because uh, in those well baby checks, they are bouncing through what they need to do uh, with your child. But they also have... You know, a number of other children that they need to see in the practice for various reasons. The first thing that I would say to parents is they need to schedule a time. If they think that they may be looking at autism or have a concern, they need to uh, schedule a time with their pediatrician. And a good way to go about doing this, and it's a free tool, uh, it's available widely on the Internet. Parents can uh, can Google this. It's something called MCHAT. It stands for Modified Checklist for Autism in Toddlers. It's an industry standard. It's widely used. And like I said, you can Google it. And it's literally when you find it, you go onto the website, you click the bubbles and answer the questions. And it's it's very straightforward. There are two reasons why you want, as a parent, to do the MCHAT. Number one, it helps start a discussion with your pediatrician. So when you say um, you know, Dr. Jones or Dr. Smith. Um, you know, I have a concern about autism. So you're going to call into the office and most lo- likely talk to, you know, a medical secretary or the office administrator. And you tell them, you know, you want to schedule time and you let them know that you're going to complete the M They'll know exactly what that is and you complete it. And, and parents make sure that you get that done about a week or so ahead of time. Uh, different pediatricians handle this differently. Some will score it right away and use it as a tool to talk to you during your visit. Uh, Others may use it as a tool that, you know, during your visit, they may seek to clarify and then score it afterwards. But it starts the discussion. And we have to remember, doctors are scientists. And so they they're going to collect data. So if you're coming with an autism concern, this is a really good way to start that conversation with your pediatrician. And by bringing up the M-chat, they'll know exactly what it is. You're being very serious and you're being very proactive. Obviously, doctors are very, very busy people. They're there to serve our best interests and, you know, obviously the best interest of your child. But this clearly communicates to your doctor that you have been planning, you have been researching. And I've never met a pediatrician or a developmental pediatrician over the years that didn't really value the input of parents, especially when it's really focused in this kind of effort. And when you follow it up with what we were talking about before the break, asking about a speech language evaluation script, an occupational therapy script. You know, those are really important pieces. So if you're talking to your doctor and you say, well, you know, my my, my child is stimming and I see a lot of kinds of behaviors that are related to that, um, you know, that helps, you know, a, a parent, you know, kind of frame that, uh, you know, that question about, you know, what are we looking at with regard to autism?
1: You know, I'm sure that not every one of our listeners is familiar with what stimming means. Can you explain that? Sure. Stimming,
2: um, it's the short version in the autism community for self-stimulatory behavior. And, uh, that sounds, that can be a very confusing and misleading statement there, but let me, let me, uh, share it with parents this way. You know, if you were, you know, the kind of student or uh, you know in high school or college, and you tapped your pencil or wiggled your uh, pencil a lot, or you were somebody who bit their nails, or you twirled your hair, or you were a pacer; those are uh, versions of stimming that we all engage in. Those are very normal things in the autism community. Stimming looks a lot like um, hand flapping or hand wringing, or um, maybe rocking behavior back and forth, or quietly humming while they're rocking, or maybe a spinning behavior. Um, Those were the kinds of things that you'd look at. And so when we say stimming, this is a soothing mechanism for an autistic person. Now, parents, I do want to caution you. You do not want to stop your child from stimming. So if they're in the local mall or you're in the supermarket and they're hand flapping or murmuring or rocking, don't try and stop them from doing it. That is a very normal response. You know, just like the, the, the the pencil tapping or the hurt hair twirling or the pacing, these are responses to stress or anxiety. And, uh, Individuals who are diagnosed on the autism spectrum, about 84% of them have anxiety-based disorders. Uh, Part of it is because of the sensory perception, Uh, and when we talk about sensory issues, when we talk about occupational therapy in the script that I was referring to earlier, you know, occupational therapists will work with your child um, to get them in touch with their bodies because they are out of sync. There are, there's a book out right now called The Out of Sync Child. It's been out for a number of years. Uh, a very good text. There are a number of texts, but when you hear a child or a person that's out of sync, they're not misbehaving. They're not necessarily carrying on, but they are not in touch with physical touch uh, pieces uh, that are that are uh, common to all of us. So um, hopefully that Linda, that frames out for you and for your listeners what stimming behavior is and just another touch point.
1: Yeah, I have another question. In terms of this observational looking at children, that makes perfect sense in terms of behavior and diagnoses. But are there any scientific tests, genetic or otherwise, that can actually diagnose autism?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, We had touched on genetic testing before the break. And, uh, you know, it's important for the listeners to understand this is not some pseudo science. This isn't something that's just made up. You know, we've all heard about, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, different um, DNA testing uh, pieces. They're all over uh, TV and media right now. But when we talk about genetic testing and we talk about uh, autism, First, our listeners need to understand what you're seeing on TV is not the same kind of genetic testing. The testing that we're talking about right now is recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics as an intervention tool to screen for autism. Mm. Um, and this that's, that's a big piece uh, for parents to understand so that um, they know there's another tool there. But, you know, this is another piece for the community at large to take a look at. You know, there are some misconceptions and misunderstandings about autism. When we talk about autism, this is not a psychological disorder. It's a physiological disorder, which means you're born with it. And it occurs during the first trimester of pregnancy. So or during the first uh, trimester of pregnancy, we're not 100 percent certain why this is occurring Um, And, you know, there's a lot of folks that are working on it. But, Linda, to get back to genetic testing and what does that look like, we talked a little bit about a blood draw, which is a very common way – uh, for um, genetic testing to be done. That's obviously not going to be really popular with a toddler. You know, they're, <laughs> they're not really thrilled about going to the doctor and getting a boo-boo shot or having a, a blood draw. And I know, you know, my own children are no different than anybody else's. That's, uh, that's not a fun thing to do. There is a genetic test out there right now that uses a cheek swab. And I know about it. I did some research on it. I did indeed do this with my own son. Uh, It looks like an oversized Q-tip. And uh, it's got a vial that it's attached to. And that vial has uh, some liquid material in it that preserves what you collect from your child. But you run this this, uh, uh, cheek swab on the inside of your child's gums. And then you invert this Q-tip. And you seal it up and write your child's name on it and you send it back to the company. They have a uh, prepaid uh, box that you put everything in. Um, So with that being the case, I know that sounds real easy and I know parents are going, huh, you know, just rub it on your – child's gums, it's its no boo-boo, you know, that sounds like a great way to do it. And it is. I highly recommend it. But, so
1: how early can you do a test like that? What is the earliest time period that a diagnostic scientific test genetic array can be done?
2: You could do it at birth.
1: It can go that early.
2: It can be done that early. Now, obviously, parents need to talk to their care providers to do this. And uh, with that being uh, the case, you know, there's a lot of care providers that are maybe not as read up on uh, the different types of genetic collection available. But this one in particular that I'm talking about, it can be done very easily. Now, parents have to be aware that they're, gonna have, they're going to have to implement uh, some some steps before they do this.
5: Right. You well, know,
2: you don't just want to stick the Q-tip in your child's mouth without preparing them for what's coming.
1: No, and, and that's what I believe you call a social story, Correct. Correct.
2: So for, for, what a, for what parents need to know, a social story is think of it as a picture story. You know, we read picture books to our children that have few words and it keys in more on the pictures. The autistic are more vis, visually acute um, than, than others are with developmental disorders. And that's a really great way to grab their attention. And so you build a picture story and you can do this with your iPhone or, you know, whatever uh, uh, cell your phone you have. You take a picture and you move that picture of your child and, uh, and you can build a, a very specific story for your child as a first step to uh, kind of, quote, read with them to get them ready. You can use a Q-tip while you're waiting for the kit to come to you. Uh, to show your child what it looks like and kind of give them a feel for what's happening. And you're going to spend a lot of time reviewing this story with your child. Uh, Once you have done so and they're comfortable, uh, we can talk about next steps uh, because there are a couple of other things that you need to do that take about two weeks to lead up to. And uh, these go hand in hand with uh, toothbrushing and good oral hygiene. So you want to have a good synthesis and a good blend.
1: Okay, Scott, we have to stop. We'll be right back.
0: We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages.
5: Listen, something is brewing. The
2: beautiful business evolution is coming. The way we do business is about to change
1: for the better.
5: Forever. This is real business at its very best. On Beautiful Business Radio, you will learn what it means to truly prosper. How to nourish
1: yourself and your business. How to earn what you deserve and make a difference in the world. The tide is rising. The change is here. Discover a new way to live, love and partner with yourself and your Business on Philippa Rollins
5: presents Beautiful Business Radio, where you matter and your business thrives every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time, only here on the Woohoo Radio Network.
4: and ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegelev for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature's Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com.
0: Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference.
1: Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Scott, on break, uh, Justin, you and I were talking about the social stories and coaching your child so that it is a more comfortable experience for them. Um, rather briefly, so we can get into a few other things, can you describe why taking a Q-tip, putting on the inside of a cheek, requires such an effort for a, an autistic child versus to some people who might think, well, that's no big deal?
2: Well, uh, to the the typical population, it isn't a big deal when you're teaching your child to brush your teeth. But for an autistic person, brushing your teeth is a really difficult thing. And I would imagine there's a lot of parents out there of autistic children that are nodding their heads and Mm -hmm. thinking that was a really difficult thing. You're introducing into the oral cavity, you know, your toothbrush uh, that produces a sensation that can be very difficult for an autistic person to deal with. Uh, combined with um, a lot of autistic individuals have a pronounced gag reflex. So, uh, you know, you don't simply want to creep into your child's room and try and take a collection. You have to prepare it. So you've got the social story. And when your, your children are just growing their teeth, a lot of times pediatricians will say, just get a, a rough washcloth and just kind of rub their teeth and gums. With the autistic, you're using that to desensitize them before you introduce a toothbrush, and so I referred to that with my son as a tooth polisher. And when it was time to introduce the swab, I desensitized his gums, gave him a moment, and then we uh, did the collection with the swab. And then he got to put it in the vial and shake it up and then proceed with brushing his teeth. You know, so it, it's, it's really about educating your child and preparing them so that there are no surprises. And, uh, and then you can get a good collection.
6: Scott, when you talk about um, preparing your children with autism, what about preparing other children who don't have autism and and just folks in society in general so they're a little more empathetic of those who who are uh, working through autism? What's going on around the country in that regard?
2: Well, there are numerous trainings that are being done locally, regionally, state levels for law enforcement first responders, certainly. Within the school systems, they typically... Uh, We'll do something like I had mentioned earlier about building cultures of caring, which is kind of a global definition for making us all more understanding of one another. I see a lot of families that uh, are, are struggling with autism and working through it, and I see them kind of come down into two groups. A very small group that is very open about discussions, which is very helpful for the community at large. And then a larger segment that kind of quietly tries to manage their own uh, circumstances. You know, it's really important that when when you see or you hear a child maybe misbehaving and a family struggling at a bus stop or see something in school, it's important for the community at large. And it could be the mall, it could be getting haircuts, it could be at the dentist. If you see a situation occurring before you jump to any conclusions that that child's misbehaving... They might be autistic and really having a hard time. And so when we talk about awareness and understanding, there are agencies and organizations that promote that. But globally, what I see is, is, is most effective is in the school circumstances. I can tell you in our, our own home, we talk very openly about autism. Uh, My eight-year-old, as I mentioned, is autistic. My six-year-old is what we would call neurotypical, or he developed typically. Fancy term for developing the way he should have uh, without any issues. And we talk frequently about autism. This morning at the bus stop, uh, my autistic son wants to be first in line because it has to do with anxiety and being in order and in purpose. And sometimes the other kids and sometimes the parents uh, look at me. And we have a discussion and I say my son's autistic and by being first, it helps soothe him and his anxiety so that he can socially fit in and be a little bit more aware. Um, And people are really, you know, the discussions with autism have changed a lot in the last five years alone, but the last 10 years globally. I think the more that we have parents and caregivers that are willing to have those discussions and, you know, children and parents can see you know, we're all more alike than we are different. And this is just uh, something that this autistic person, their family has to encounter. You know, they're more understanding and they're more apt to understand uh, what's going
0: on.
6: Yeah, I, I understand all that um, and I appreciate it. But it sounds, it's and certainly autism is something we're all talking about a little bit more than when I was growing up and I never heard of it then. But I just, it, it seems like it's the burden is on on you and your children, and the individuals right. who are dealing with it, and it seems like how hard would it be in the schools because kids can be mean to each other. We know this, and and if someone is stimming, that that might you know and that might react. A lot of kids might make fun of him or her for that. And what efforts do you see in any of the schools? Whether it's just a one-hour program or something like that, just to explain what autism is from a from a professional to kids, so they say, "Wow, I see that person. Let me help him or her." Instead of my first reaction, let me make fun of them or things like that.
2: That's a great question. Let me give a real quick example. Typically, we don't have autism assemblies. You know, yeah. they address things globally with bullying right. and whatnot. But um, you know, when I was a school administrator. I was I had a teacher, a veteran teacher who had never uh, had the opportunity to educate an autistic person. I had placed an autistic child into her class, a female. This is a fifth grade teacher. And I did a lot of very intense training and work with that teacher to build cultures of caring. But your good staff, your good teachers will seize the day and the opportunity. In this particular case, uh, a young lady was stimming. She was uh, she hand flapped and rocked quite a bit. And the teacher used the opportunity. The kids were kind of looking at this child. And just like you said, Justin, you know, kids can be pretty rough on each other sometimes. Uh And they were looking at this young lady. I was actually in the class doing an observation. And the teacher stopped dead in her tracks and said, you know what? This has been a lot to work on today. Let's all just get up and stand up and shake it out. And everybody stood up and looked at the teacher kind of funny. And again, like I said, uh, you know, fifth grade, pre-adolescence, we're all watching what everybody does, certainly. But the teacher emulated what the child was doing, shook out her hands, and they took, a you know, a quick 15, 30-second break and sat back down. The child's stimming behavior was addressed. But more importantly, what occurred with that teacher is she addressed her entire class and said, this is totally normal behavior. Shake it out. OK, let's move on. The child stopped stimming. The other kids in the class relaxed. There's a prime example of what you're talking about, awareness and understanding, Uh, and it usually comes in those small moments rather than a global moment like a school uh, assembly.
6: Yeah, I I understand that, and that does sound like a perfect way to address it, and I know when my wife was a teacher, it was very important for her to do that, and I could see because the kids in that class had had been going, to that was a third grade class, they had been going to school with each other for a couple of years, so they they understood what was going on, and they were very accepting. I'm just, I guess I'm just more concerned with an environment where the teacher doesn't know to do that, and then where it's not being addressed on a low level, and then a kid grows up dealing with, um, you know, maybe some ostracism, or just being treated differently, when it's something they can't even control, and it reminds me of what Wounded Warriors goes through on a different level.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: I agree completely. And again, you know, it's about the whole school community working yeah. with parents and the care providers to promote awareness and understanding.
1: Well, what's very interesting that you bring the, the uh, military community up, Justin, because it seems as though there mm. must be high levels of anxiety and PTS, secondary PTS, in this community as well. So the caregiving can be quite similar in many regards to taking care of a wounded warrior, just on a different level. But for the person who is sandwiched caregiving, taking care of both, the pressures are high. So what guidance do you have in the next, say, two minutes um, for the caregivers themselves in terms of how they can gain some help, some respite, or even just some greater understanding so it makes their lives a bit smoother?
2: Um, certainly, you know, it's important when we talk about caregivers and sandwich caregivers, you know, the first thing, uh, that I say during my trainings and my seminars and my presentations is, you know, there's a grieving process associated when you have a diagnosis like this and men and women grieve differently, cut your partner, some slack and work with them that they might be handling this differently, but recognize you need time to connect And recognize that there is a significant strain on you. So it's really important for every opportunity for you to work with your spouse uh, as much as possible. Maybe with a therapist or another care provider to take care of yourself so you can be at your very best, you know, in the circumstance that you're working in. There is a, a tremendous amount of strain that's associated in the autism community. And little things just like going to get haircuts or You know, uh, a trip to go see the Easter Bunny here. You know, Easter is coming up shortly. These are tremendously stressful events that the community at large doesn't necessarily understand. We look at Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and people waiting in line. And there's always a little person that cries because they're afraid, you know, and then they see somebody who may be autistic really having a difficult time there's incredible strain even if parents are very focused and very well trained and and prepare their children it doesn't always go the way you want it to and i know that it's been really important in our family that you not feel like you're going this alone and you reach out and um you know and get help
1: you know scott i think that you're listing a lot of information and we've given a lot on this program i'd like to Um, have you share how people could get in touch with you directly so they can ask you questions if they wish. What's the best way to reach you?
2: The best way to reach me is via email, um, at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, I certainly am very responsive to parents and families and uh, act as a resource to place families from all over the country in touch with resources. I just did some work with a, a family with a therapy dog and the National Center for Exploited and Missing Children. So I get a lot of communication from all over the comp, uh, country. Uh, you know, this particular circumstance was down in Florida. Um, you know, but we get a lot of those pieces. And don't be afraid, parents, to reach out and say, "Hey, I heard your show." Uh, what do I do about this? And I'll be happy to get in touch with families and work with them to get them in touch with the resources that they need.
1: Perfect. So to repeat that, it's Outreach network at gmail.com. Scott, what would you like to add as a closing um, message for our listeners and about their children?
2: I think the biggest takeaway here is if you suspect as a parent or as a caregiver, that you are dealing with an autism situation, you really need to uh, trust your gut instinct. I often refer to, you know, a mother's intuition because it's usually moms that pick up on it first. No offense, gentlemen. We're usually a little late to the party because, you know, we didn't carry that baby for nine months and we don't have that intuitive space. But go with that gut instinct. Pursue it. Don't let anybody tell you that it's it's not the place that you need to be. You definitely need to get there as soon as possible
1: fantastic information scott thank you so much for sharing this with our listeners uh, again to reach scott autism outreach network at gmail.com thank you for being our guest today and have a good week
0: Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com and in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance your